I have a few questions, but not from the perspective of a healthcare professional, but what was your experience as a patient? Welcome to the second episode of Let's Talk About It. So with us, we have Cassandra Veilleux, who is a nurse at Royal Victoria Hospital. So Cassandra, tell us more about your experience. So you told me that you were a nurse at the surgical ward, but then due to the pandemic, you had to start working at the COVID unit. How was that like? So at first, we still had, uh, when the pandemic first started in March, our unit was still a surgical ward. But since surgeries were slowly shutting down to only the priority surgeries, we were becoming more and more of a medical ward. So seeing a lot of patients with uh, chronic medical conditions. And eventually our unit slowly transformed and became solely a COVID-positive unit. So it's been three weeks that we've been 100% COVID-positive unit where most of our patients uh, come from either uh, other hospitals or transfers from other hospitals because they became positive to COVID or they are transfers from uh, CHSNDs because the CHSNDs are a bit overwhelmed at, at the moment. So for us who are in lockdown right now, we're at home, we're either looking at things through the social media or the news. We have very little idea of what's going on in the front line. Tell us how, mm -hmm. how the situation is, like how overwhelming it is. On top of that, you yourself, you contracted COVID-19. We're realizing that more and more healthcare professionals are prone to getting this infection. So how bad are things? Um, it's a little bit hard for me to say how bad things are, um, given that, you know, right now the outbreak of the, of the situation is really located in the CHSLD. So I don't really work in the CHSLD per se, but what I've heard from colleagues who work there, the situation is really bad. There's a huge lack of um, the personal protective equipment, uh, what we call PPE. There's also uh, the administration that's not uh, always really involved in uh, providing these PPEs or making sure that there's not staff shortage. So there's a lot of people that either don't come in or become sick and are not replaced. So the staff are forced to do a lot of overtime work, uh, are forced to work in conditions that are pretty surreal and out of the ordinary, given the circumstances. So I know that from CHSLD, people, it's very, very, very difficult at the moment. It is otherwise difficult on the unit, given that we're not used to working with 100% very elderly, delirious, demented population. So psychologically, it's really hard on all of us and given that you have to bundle your care which means that you have to enter in the patient's room the least amount of time possible because every time you have to basically gown up and then gain and gown down it makes it very distressing for the patients if they're delirious or they just want someone to talk to and you can't really you know go in very often or stay in the room for hours at the time because you have other patients to care for and also because we kind of have to reduce the amount of time that we spent in the every patient's room uh, if they're doing fine so it's been very very difficult to deal with it uh, with all of this on a daily basis i bet just hearing about it is making me nervous i don't know how you deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis wow it's well we make it work and uh, we work in teams so it really helps and we have a lot of support from you know our staff 
a lot of us are trying to keep positive, continue cracking jokes, uh, despite the severity of the situation and despite the amount of death that we're seeing uh, on a weekly basis. It's a, it's a lot of people who end up dying from this disease, for sure. Well, this disease is virus. And what's the age set that is the most vulnerable? Like, not just from statistics, but from your own experience on the front line? Um, I'd say the people that are older than 70 years old are a lot more prone to dying from this disease. But I will also say what really um, puts people at a bigger risk is the amount of comorbidities that they have. So if they suffer from either cardiac issues, respiratory issues, if they're, they're known to have like diabetes, hypertension, any kind of chronic disabilities that would facilitate some sort of complication, they're at a greater risk of perhaps suffering from you know, severe backlash from this virus per se. But I'd say a lot of the elderly population that are in bad shape are suffering a lot from it. And a lot of elderly who are already like bed bound, if they, you are already in a CHSLD, uh, less autonomous, like that increases your risk of dying from this virus versus if you're old but somewhat healthy and you still live at home, so you're pretty active that could facilitate your recuperation. These uh, elderly people who are dying, at the time of their death, are visitors allowed? Can they see their family? Can they communicate with their family? Because I, I bet it's lonely in there. It's uh, not only you're suffering mm -hmm. from, from this disease, on top of that, you have the stress of you know not seeing your family, of being completely isolated. So paint a picture of how things go on in this situation and if there are anything that the system can do to alleviate their loneliness. Well, from a medical perspective, uh, if the patients are dying, you know, there's protocols that are put in place to make to make sure that they're very comfortable and they're not suffering. So we do provide that. As soon as they are what we call actively dying, which means they are in the process of kind of just passing away, the doctors do call the family. And if the family are interested, we do provide them with some sort of waiver, which means that they are allowed to come and agree their goodbyes to um, their loved ones for a couple hours. So you could get the, the sons, the daughters, the uncle, nieces, and whatnot, whoever's interested, to come and just say, grant their goodbyes. Um, and then, uh, you know, it sort of relieves a little bit of the loneliness that the person um, encounters. But yet again, they, they still have to gown. Uh, they still have to take all the precautions necessary. But yes, they are allowed to come and say their goodbyes. Other than gowning up and down, even maintaining social distance, you mentioned that to decrease the odds of infection, you try to do whatever you need to do at the least amount of time possible. Other than that, what are the protocols that you follow to prevent infection? So at all times during our shifts, we are uh, mandated to wear a mask. So all the healthcare professionals always wearing a mask, on a surgical, uh, you know, a procedural mask to make sure that droplets aren't spread everywhere because uh, on our nursing pods it's very near impossible to maintain a two meter distance and um, otherwise when we go to patient's room we do keep the mask but we also have a visor we have a gown we have gloves and whatnot so we're well protected given that when we care for patients uh, we cannot maintain the two meter distancing between each other since you know we have to provide a close care which makes sense so for that we're well protected and i'd say uh, we clean the areas very often as well. As soon as we have a downtime, we'll just wipe the entire nursing pods, computer, phones, uh, printers, and whatnot, 
So we do that as minimally three times a day, but I'd say probably more like six or seven times a day. Wow. In a 24 hour span, we'll clean everything. And how many hours do you work per week? Um, it varies from week to week. Usually if uh, we are full-timers, which means we have a full-time position, we work approximately 75 hours per two weeks. So it comes up to about 37.540 hours per week, which is normal week for everyone. And then uh, you could do overtime. Um, I know at the MUHC, we, uh, it's not mandatory, the overtime. So if ever you want to do overtime, you know, it's, your call, you decide that you're, you want to do that. I know that for other hospitals or CHSLD, they do get the mandatory overtime, which means they, that was supposed to be an eight hour to become a 16 hour very easily. I bet that there is a strain on mental health as well. So the healthcare professionals in Quebec, are they receiving any support in terms of mental health? So I know that the NUHC, I can't really speak for the other CEOs, unfortunately. But I know that within the MUHC, we do have a psychosocial uh, phone line uh, that all workers can use. We also get uh, support from our management staff as well as, um, you know, know, other workers that uh, come and kind of just assess how we're doing. Uh, As I mentioned previously, we support each other a lot just within our own staff. So, you know, we've become very close during this pandemic and working together beforehand and seeing a lot of difficult things. So we're quite a knit type group. So we do get support from each other and we do understand each other's struggles as well. And uh, um, I'd say in terms of psychosocial, that would be pretty much what we have uh, for the moment. Like, I'm glad to, to see that during this time, you are there for each other to help each other out. I bet that that's a tremendous support system. Yeah, fortunately, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that could still be done from the administrative, like, governmental uh, institutions because we've declared in case sanitaire for the moment. Uh, the government has, you know, put a hold on all of the vacations that... Uh, some of us were planning on taking and whatnot. So a lot of my colleagues who plan on taking some vacation weeks during the month of May can't anymore because of that. And, you know, given that they've worked throughout the entire pandemic, they've seen a lot of changes. They, they had to adapt that very quickly due to the protocol changing uh, multiple times a day. A lot of them are starting to get tired. A week off for a lot of them would definitely be uh, something they would appreciate, but... Then again, it has to come from the government and not uh, from the management side. And on top of that, it's a strain on the healthcare system as well. So I empathize with the uh, policymakers and also the administrators because it's not an easy case to handle when there's so many people getting sick in a short amount of time. But I do get your point. Like if, to be honest, all, all I can say that as some someone who is in lockdown, I think the least we could do is to stay in so we don't spread it. Because judging from what you're telling me, it's it's already a, a difficult scenario. Well, it's not. It's definitely not ideal, but uh, I think the best that everyone can do is kind of just follow what the government says and a little bit go with the flow and see how things go. But uh, if there's no vaccines or no medications that are going to be put uh, on the market anytime soon, given that it takes a lot of time to develop these things, in order to get you know a little bit more out of uh, this life and staying confined. Eventually, the government will have to find a balance between defining people and making sure not to overburden the hospital. So eventually, people will have to go out, uh, be careful, but always 
follow what the, the government wants. So if we want to go back to somewhat of a normal life, people eventually will have to come out of their their houses and risk contracting this because we'll need herd immunity. And the, the only way that we'll get that is if people get the virus that are not elderly people or healthcare workers, because for now, these are the only big groups of individuals that are contracting the virus. In layman's term, could you explain what is exactly herd immunity? Is it a risk worth taking? It's a very complex situation, and the government will have to be very careful with this. Uh, the idea behind herd immunity is in order to be sort of uh, immunized as a society is only if a large proportion of the population gets infected with the virus, recovers from it, and then is considered to have, or at least that's what we think for now, uh, the antibodies allowing that not to get sick and contract the virus in under time. So some research have mentioned that if about 60 to 65% of the population end up getting COVID, then we would have obtained this herd immunity status. However, to get to that plateau, we need people to start going out and, you know, mingle in a way with each other, in, well, in a safe way with each other, uh, just to, to see uh, how things are going and kind of just spreading, but safely, the virus. It's very complex because you want the population to get infected with the virus, but you don't want them to get sick enough that it burdens the hospital. So the government has to be careful in making sure that only small portions of individual back to their work life. Some of them may be able to stay asymptomatic and kind of just never get sick. Others will get sick. Others may have some mild symptoms and quarantine at home. But the government has to be very careful and has to choose very wisely which group of individuals to send them to the community first. I get the point that when you said it's a complex scenario, like, yes, we need herd immunity, but it's a question of resource at this point. How much can you handle? It's hard to say. It's it's a very delicate situation. For now, our hospitals have some spots. You still have some beds. You don't want to burn these hospitals. At the same time, all the hospitals so far are doing pretty fine. They sell a lot of empty beds for children. So I do understand why the government That's actually one of my questions that I had, you know, the Quebec government has a tentative plan to reopen schools from May 11. So that's pretty much, so that's basically the reason. So instead of letting everybody get out at the same time, groups of people get out that we can manage. Exactly. That's what mm -hmm. I think the premise behind all of this, to start with only elementary schools. Right now, most of our, our cases come from CHSLDs. I know we have a couple that come from either manufacturers as well, and uh, the other group that are healthcare providers. So these are pretty much just three groups of individuals that are like infected by the virus. If we get the kids and the teacher, you know, that comes up with another group. And again, it's for small periods of time because we're pretty much opening the schools for, what, a month? which I understand doesn't really make sense, 
But given that it's a very, very tiny amount of time, you know, maybe only a certain proportion of these people will get it, but it won't be enough. At this point, it's it's all hypothetical. We really don't know how it, this is going to play out. And, you know, as a health professional, we'll just have to deal with the consequences and the government will have to adjust as it goes to see if we're able to handle this or if we need to reconfine again because it's, it's spreading too much. So from what I'm seeing, it's the governments around the world are basically trying to write the playbook of what should we do in cases like this. But later on, if we have pandemics like this, after COVID-19, we're going to have a tremendous amount of data to actually make policies that would be realistic. So I guess we just got to break through it. But for the viewers who are listening about the herd immunity, please, that does not mean you should go outside and party. Just listen to your governments, listen to the guidelines, hoping that we'll all get through this together. I completely I'm definitely not saying you know we should mingle and have fun and go for walks unprotected uh, you should still wash your hands at the point that they're dry every day you should definitely wear a mask if ever you take public transport or if you go to the groceries or whatnot to just make sure that you're you're not spreading uh, some of the viruses or you're not catching anything from anybody but mostly for spreading you should still maintain social distances you shouldn't see family that you're not living with like everything that we've been saying for the past month and a half still apply uh, it's just right now some of the measures may change slowly because the government will enforce new laws and we should definitely follow and keep updated on the uh, everything that they're putting forward while maintaining social distancing and trying our best at staying inside if we don't have to go outside, except if we want to go for a walk with our dog or a walk by ourselves. I have a few questions, but not from the perspective of a healthcare professional, but what was your experience as a patient? So I was very lucky. I caught it rather early on in uh, mid-March. And uh, my symptoms were really, really mild. They uh, were very similar to having the flu, except that I was more fatigued than I usually am if I catch the flu. And I had what we call anosmia, which means I couldn't smell anything. But I could still taste, so that was uh, the silver lining. And I had a lot of back and leg pain, which was very abnormal for me. However, I was able to stay at home. I didn't experience any shortness of breath, any difficulty breathing or uh, any sorts of that. So it was really more of a nasal congestion, a little bit of uh, pain on, in the back. So it just takes a couple of days for your system to kind of just fight it off. And then uh, after that, you're kind of just waiting to get uh, negative swabs again. <laughs> So once recovered, can you contract COVID-19 again? So that's the $1 million question at the moment. There is not a definite answer from the researchers. Uh, my understanding from a lot of the researchers' hypotheses is that for the length of the pandemic, your risk of contracting it again is very low. However, it doesn't mean that it cannot be reactivated again. So you can perhaps experience some of those symptoms again, but without catching it very, uh, without, you know, experiencing severe symptoms again. So by that, I mean, if you cut it once, technically you should have uh, the antibodies, but if you don't have a load of antibodies that's elevated enough, which means if you don't have enough antibodies to fight the uh, COVID-19 again, 
You could get what we call a reactivation, which means you could experience, say, a little bit of nasal congestion for a day or two or whatnot, and then it would go away. But it doesn't mean that you would test positive again if you were reswabbed. Speaking of antibodies, it seems like it's not just the older populace that are in danger, but also immunocompromised people, people who do not have spleens, for example, should be scary for them. Those are who are under chemotherapy as well. A lot of immunocompromised people, uh, so transplant patients, they're uh, at high risk of uh, catching uh, this, this virus. How did you maintain social distancing at home? For example, if you have, let's say, family members and you contract COVID-19 and you have to distance yourself, how did you manage and what would you recommend to other people? So I live alone. Therefore, it was very easy to uh, social distance myself from everybody else. Okay. Um, but if you do it at home, um, a lot of the people I know who lived at home and had COVID-19 would um, stay in their room if they had more than one bathroom like the bathroom was basically designated to the COVID infected individual so he would use the bathroom for the length of his positivity to COVID and then after that everybody else could uh, reuse that bathroom he couldn't basically get out of his room so all his meals were brought up to his room and then were you know given out another way back to the kitchen be sent to be clean with warm water uh, preferably in a dishwasher so i'd say these are like some of the major ways to social distance yourself if you live uh, in a house or uh, in an apartment with two bedrooms is really to have one bathroom per person with a shower and whatnot and then like one bathroom that's designated to the COVID infected individual, one for the other people, and then the food is kind of just brought to that individual who cannot access, you know, areas that are shared uh, with uh, most of the people. So very frustrating, but doable, in my opinion. In a lot of households, a lot of people do not have the luxury of, let's say, two bathrooms. If you only have one bathroom, then mm -hmm. it means that every time a person uses that bathroom, it has to be clean thoroughly before somebody else can use it absolutely so it, it can be very difficult that's for sure but it's pretty much the only way to not avoid but reduce the the spreading of this uh, this virus so speaking of the government's response what would have been the ideal response like from your perspective during the early signs of the incoming pandemic that's a tough question to be honest, I think uh, Legault went all in at the beginning. He did, decided to pretty much shut down the economy, confine everyone at home, and uh, restrain people from, you know, mingling together and whatnot. You know, I, I don't think there was any way that he could have acted better on that because, you know, in hospitals, uh, people weren't able to come and see their loved ones. Everyone was kind of just confined. So from the get-go, I think our government did a pretty good job. You know, the situation got worse when the CHSLD started being affected. But again, we knew that if this, you know, made its way into the CHSLD, it would be a death sentence for a lot of individuals because these are all old and very ill people confined in an environment. So chances are their, their risk is very great. And if there was a lack of protections from the healthcare professional there, 
uh, then it was meant to be a disaster. So from a governmental point of view, I don't think in the beginning they could have acted differently to prevent this. It, it was a very quick response. Very, It was pretty brutal to say, like, from a day to the next, everything kind of just shut down and people were staying at home. So I don't think Legault could have done anything differently. I think he acted very well, in my opinion, at the beginning. Me too. I'm thoroughly impressed by the quickness of the provincial government. From my side, I, I was really impressed by what he did. And especially it took him, what, one or two days to implement all his policies. That's big. Because mm-hmm. I'm comparing with, let's say, the, the states where, despite having excellent game plan by, let's say, the CDC, like, how do you fail at that? So you're seeing a lot of older people in, in your COVID ward, but are you also seeing, let's say, people who are younger who are contracting it? And let's say people who are younger who are contracting it, at what point should we go to the hospital? Um, so to answer your question, yes, we do see uh, the occasional young individuals. We've seen 20-year-olds, uh, people 30, 40. Yeah, these are, would con- be considered pretty young. They're more rare, but they are there. Most of them came in because they were having respiratory issues. They were able to breathe properly. They were very short of breath, very distressed. They couldn't either get out of bed without being very short of breath or be able to make it to the bathroom without being really out of breath, as if you did a, a marathon on type of out of breath, or if you were not a jogger and decided to go for a 10K run. So for sure, as soon as you experience a lot of symptoms of shortness of breath, you should definitely go to the emergency. We also have uh, individuals who are having a lot of like diarrhea uh, types of situations, uh, which leads to dehydration and electrolyte imbalances. So as soon as you get, you know, a dysregulation of your uh, bowel movements, these are definitely a situation that could become worrisome, as we know with COVID. So I say these are pretty much two of the basic and major ones that we've seen in young individuals for them to get admitted to the hospitals. Uh, most of them, it's, if it's pretty mild, we don't tend to see them on the uh, on the ward. But then again, it's hard for me as well to answer properly these questions because I'm sure there's a lot of young people who end up going to the emergency. And since I don't really work on a, in the emergency, I don't really know exactly uh, what types of uh, patients uh, would be seen there to kind of just correct something and then send home to recuperate. But at least for those who get it in hospitalized, uh, shortness like respiratory and uh, urinary problems are some of the bigger ones. So it's, it differs from case to case. So to sum it up, let's say if you're severely dehydrated due to diarrhea or you have shortness of breath, to a point that you can't even breathe, then yeah, you should go to the hospital then. Yes. Shortness of breath, 100%. Some of these individuals end up in the ICU intubated for days at a time. So it could get pretty severe. People who are smokers, are they more at risk? Yes. Quitting smoking right now, is this going to do anything? Or Because a lot of people, what they do, because of the stress of isolation, they smoke even more. It's, I mean, I'm not reinventing the wheel by saying that, you know, smoking leads to a lot of complications. People who do smoke are aware of, I mean, hopefully most of them are aware of some of the complications related to smoking. And a lot of these individuals, you know, continue doing it despite 
of all the risks that they're exposing themselves to because of the relief and, you know, the pleasure that it provides them. It's everyone's decision. It's just that, you know, after you have to live with the consequences of, of, of making those decisions. I can understand that when you're under a lot of stress like this, you tend to do something that brings you, uh, you know, that calms you and brings you some joy. So to me, it makes sense that, you know, if smoking provides you that, do it more often. Uh, however, you know, it's, it's bad for the lungs to begin with. And the lungs of the smokers are definitely not pretty and pink. Therefore, they have a lot of uh, respiratory issues, uh, which means that they're more prone to having uh, major complications secondary to this, uh, this virus, that's for sure. Some people are switching to vaping to substitute smoking. Is it going to help? Like e-cigarette? E-cigarettes, jewels, electronic vaping, basically. I mean, it's also been proving that it's, you know, it's... Uh, and whatnot are still not good for your lungs in the own the in the long run. Therefore, the consequences will be the same with regards to COVID. That's for sure. So the bottom line is, COVID or not, don't smoke. Quit if you can. That, for sure, but I mean, even if you quit during COVID, it doesn't mean that the the risk of getting COVID really bad is going to be less because you've quit. Because as we know, it takes about ten years for your lungs to get much better after you quit therefore if you quit the two weeks ago and then you get covid you know you could get it just as bad as if you had continued smoking so gotta be careful with all of that it takes a long time Regarding rumors, especially on the social media, there are some hack cures, basically, that people are trying to propagate. You know, people are trying to talk about, let's say, for example, there's one where I've seen that if you hold a blow dryer into your mouth, you have less chance of getting COVID, like or stupid stuff like that. So people, for example, who do not have a background in the sciences, for example, let's say the basic knowledge of biology to understand that, hey, maybe this cure that they're talking about, it doesn't make sense for people who are, let's say, prone to fake news, what would you recommend to them? Because not only these rumors can either give them false hope or sometimes it amplifies the panic even more. So self-education-wise, what would be your recommendation? Mm -hmm. I mean, I definitely would recommend uh, keeping yourself informed. You know, it's never too late to start uh, digging up permission from known resources. You know, it's okay not to read uh, scientific uh, articles every day if uh, for you they're a bit too hard to understand. However, they are sources that are more, you know, legit, if I could put it this way. So, for example, you know, Radio-Canada is a pretty good resource and it tends to keep it rather simple for everyone to understand the, ba the basic behind a lot of these uh, cures or these researches uh, that are ongoing and whatnot. So you just have to be careful with uh, the source that you, you follow. You know, Montreal blog may not be the most legit source to get a lot of information uh, uh, regarding uh, hacks or uh, cures for COVID, even though there, there are none for the moment. My last question is, uh, it's a very hypothetical scenario. From your perspective, would the world be the same after COVID? Once this is over, would it ever be the same? And what no. are the changes that you're seeing unfolding in the future? 
At this point, again, it's very hard to say because most of the population is still very confined. But for sure, you know, the world as we knew it uh, a year ago will definitely not be the same a year from now. Uh, a lot of things will have changed. A lot of things will have to adapt to new regulations and whatnot. There may be more social distancing in the future, at least if we're not socially distanced, we may have to protect ourselves uh, a bit more. It's hard at this point to exactly say how it will be or to project in the future and uh, have a better idea of how things will be. But uh, for sure, we can agree to say that, you know, it'll be very different and people will be scared for a very lengthy amount of time to go back to being in a crowded environment, knowing everything that we know today. And for people who are in quarantine right now, um, if you would like to leave a message to them, what would you say? Um, that's also, it's a, it's a good one. Um, you know, I, I was quarantined myself for 27 days, very strictly, unable to go for walks, unable to take any fresh air or whatnot. So I do sympathize and empathize with uh, everyone who's stuck at home. I've been there and I completely understand everything behind it, especially if you live alone like me. Um, I'd say, you know, it's okay to have good days and bad days. It's also okay if your bad days are when it's raining outside because you don't have a lot of uh, light inside, inside your place. So it's completely normal. I think everybody is going through a roller coaster with a lot of bumps on the road, a lot of ups and downs. I'd say, you know, talking to friends or family over Zoom, FaceTime, Skype, whatever, talking about, you know, how you feel and whatnot to people that you feel comfortable to is also a great means of communication that could help you. Some people can actually be very good at providing you with tools. And another thing that really helps is to, it sucks and everybody says it, but it does make sense, is to, you know, get a routine, make yourself to-do list and try and stick with it as much as possible and be active to the best of your abilities. Exercise does help to increase and elevate the mood by releasing some endorphins. So there's no there's no secret miracle, to be honest. It's, it's going to be a bunch of, of up and downs and a lot of a difficult situation, but you just have to adapt and learn from it and make the best out of the situation, pretty much. Thank you so much, Cassandra. Not only for your services that you're providing right now, because without the aid of the healthcare professionals, I don't know where we will be. So I guess for all of us, the best way we can honor our healthcare professionals, our essential workers, is to follow the guideline, stay home and stay safe. Yeah, pretty much.